0: Well, the New Hampshire primary is just one day away, and speculation is rampant as to how it will actually go. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Durie. Welcome to another episode of the Jamie Durie Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store and simply search out the Jamie Durie Show those native podcast aggregator apps so you can go to those or you can simply download the free Podbean app at either of those two locations and you can subscribe to the show that way either way you choose to subscribe you'll be able to leave reviews comments we desperately need more of both please give us a five star review we try and do our best for you and uh if you'd like to you can always email me at our new email address the Jamie Dury show at gmail.com. If you have a question or a topic you'd like me to cover for a future broadcast, feel free to weigh in there at that address. We'd like to bring you more in the way of offering, so the more you can give us in terms of input and support, the better we can do for you. Now, before we get to the coverage of the election, there's a couple of other things I'd like to talk about uh, and get those out of the way first. One of the first ones I'd like to speak of is a very, very tragic event that took place over the weekend. This was reported, uh, among other places, justthenews.com. It's the first place I heard about it, but it's been since reported in other places. Uh, Multiple U.S. personnel were wounded in a missile attack on a U.S. base in Iraq by Iranian-backed militants. And this attack was launched from somewhere in western Iraq. This was on Saturday night. Uh, and this happened at 6.30 p.m. local time in Iraq. Multiple ballistic missiles and rockets fired from western Iraq, uh, on social, uh, according to a statement posted on social media by the U.S. Central Command. Quote, most of the missiles were intercepted, but others impacted the base, according to CENTCOM there are multiple U.S. personnel being evaluated for traumatic brain injuries. It does not say anyone was killed, but getting a traumatic brain injury is not exactly a walk in the park. Now, as horrific as I find this, and as distasteful as I find this, being that Iran is one of the largest exporters of terrorism in the world, one of our most sworn enemies, what I find more disturbing is a little postscript in the Last paragraph of the story. This is a very short news blurb. It's only three or four paragraphs. Are you ready for this? This is the 144th attack on U.S. troops based in Iraq and Syria since the start of the war with Israel on October 7th, when Hamas, backed by Iran, attacked Israel, killing 1,200 Israelis and taking. 240 hostages. Now, did you know that there were 143 attacks on U.S. troops based in Iraq and Syria since October 7th prior to this 144th attack on Saturday night? I didn't, and I consider myself a fairly good consumer of news. That's because it's not been reported, and that should tell you all you need to know about the American news media. That 143 attacks can happen against American forces, and you're simply not told about it. That's disgraceful. So keep that in mind when you go and vote in your upcoming primaries. Now, another little tidbit which I found very interesting. Uh, I recall last week I was watching some of the coverage on the um, Iowa caucuses. And I don't mean to get into the election right now. I'm segueing into this. And I was watching uh, MSNBC with that idiot, Rachel Maddow, and she was going on and on about talking about how they're not going to coverage, uh, carry the coverage rather, of the victory speech of the winner of the Iowa caucuses. They couldn't even bring themselves to say his name because uh, we as a news agency uh, pay a price when we allow untruths to be spoken so we're not going to cover that we're going to let you know if you, if the person makes any news but we're not going to cover it and meanwhile another outlet was showing a clip of Rachel Maddow saying that and then juxtaposing it with a clip of Rachel Maddow during the COVID um, debacle where she was talking about how we should get the vaccine that once you get that vaccine that's it the virus stops with that person a person can't transmit it, the virus stops. They were spreading all types of falsehoods. We know that the vaccine didn't stop the virus. In fact, many studies told us that if you were vaccinated, you were more likely to get the virus. It's just that their hope was that the virus would be at a reduced level of strength. That was the purpose of the vaccine, to make sure you received a sufficiently weakened virus or a a less efficacious version of the virus. Now, how many of you go out and get vaccini- uh, vaccinations just to increase the likelihood of getting something? I would have rather have had a more serious version of COVID, had at one time acquired natural immunity and been protected. I know people who have had the vaccine, they've had COVID six, seven or eight times. Who wants to be isolating six or seven or eight times? This is a big disruption on your life to say nothing of the fact that we don't know what the long-term effects are. On our lives and I don't think the International World Health Organization or other organizations know either but they're trying they're trying to see how much they can control your life right now they're working on a thing called disease X what is disease X that the World Health Organization is preparing for the top concern for the next two years is not conflict or climate It is disinformation and misinformation, says European Commission President. Listen to this. Global organizations are working to build a permanent, globally controlled state of readiness for the coming of the heralded Disease X. Speaking at the World Economic Forum seminar called Preparing for Disease X, WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom. Gabriel Jesus, whatever the hell his name is, stated that in 2018, his organization needed to have a placeholder for the disease we don't know. And that was when we gave the name Disease X. He said, we're preparing for COVID-like diseases. You may even call COVID the first Disease X. Since then, global organizations such as the WHO, the WEF, the World Bank, G7, G20, have been working to build a global infrastructure to fight the next pandemic whatever form it takes. Translation, they're looking at ways to screw you over. They're looking at ways to increase their authority over you and to use the most threadbarest of excuses to cause you to do what they want you to do. Take vaccines that they want you to take. Enrich their brethren who are invested heavily in these manufacturing of these vaccines, which we see before our very eyes did nothing to stop COVID. Uh, it increased the likelihood of you getting COVID. And there may be other ancillary effects that we're not even fully aware of yet, such as myocarditis, which enlarged hearts among young people. And I recently read a study, or actually listened to a study on the news in my car the other day that said that in the state of New Jersey, cancer was up 58%. How do you account for such a rise in cancers of all stripes in the general population? What one thing have a significant portion of the general population engaged in that might account for this. Everybody's getting that damn COVID vaccine. You think that may have done it? It certainly affected our immune system. Maybe not the Johnson & Johnson, which is basically a a true vaccine, a dead virus injected into you so your body could make antibodies. This uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, these were mRNA technologies. These are new things Nobody's really even explaining to us how they work. Who knows what they've done? All I know is I will never get these vaccines again. And I think that the medical community, particularly in terms of these bureaucracies, I'm not talking about the average doctor or nurse. I'm talking about these bureaucracies like the NIH, with that Fauci, phony son of a bitch, and um, the World Health Organization and the like. Uh, these these vaccine hawks, if you will, I think they did a big disservice, not only to themselves but to the people of this country and the people of the world, because people look to experts; they look for advice that they can trust, advice that they can believe in. Now, most people, when they hear the word vaccine, they think of something that they can get uh, injected into themselves or they can take orally that will now protect them against infection or the ill effects of a particular pathogen, virus, disease, or what have you. That's what we think of when we get vaccine. We got vaccinated for polio when I was a child so that we wouldn't get polio. You vaccinated children for the measles so they wouldn't get the measles, not so that they got a reduced potency version of the measles or a weaker version of polio so that they didn't get it at all. And that is the basis on which I think most people consented to take the vaccine. And early on, after people started getting it, and we found out that people uh, were still getting the disease, all of a sudden they now changed it. Well, there's a different definition of vaccine. If it lessens the severity or attenuates the severity, it's still a vaccine. I think if you try to sell these vaccines, on the premise that you would still get COVID, but you would get a slightly reduced version uh, or slightly reduced in, in, in uh, potency version, but that you would still get the disease. That fact, coupled with the fact that people already had a certain amount of reservations because of the accelerated manner in which these vaccines were produced and approved, you wouldn't have got anywhere near the compliance. So obviously they wanted compliance for a reason, And they got compliance through deception, not through the honest communication of information. And when someone has to deceive you in order to get you to comply, you should be highly suspicious of what they're selling and what they're getting you to take. And so because of that, even if we have legitimate vaccines in the future that could legitimately help us against the spread of a real, true pandemic, not something that was hatched in a laboratory as biological warfare. We're going to hurt ourselves because people are not going to take it because confidence in these public institutions has been seriously eroded as a result of what happened with the mismanagement of COVID. That's all I'm going to say on that. Now, let's get back to the election. Now, last week was a big wake up call for everyone on the left. Big wake up call for people in the media. Nobody could believe it. A record, a record. In a four-way race, 52%, 52% of Iowa caucus goers voted for Donald Trump, 52%. There are 99 counties in the state. He won 98 of the 99. And the one county he lost, he lost by one vote, one so it was as close to a clean sweep as you can get. Now, the person who won that 99th county was Nikki Haley, but she didn't win anything else, and she finished second in all the other counties. Actually, finished third. She finished third in all the other counties behind Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, exception, with the exception of that one county that Nikki Haley won, was second in 98 out of 99 counties. Trump was first. So Nikki Haley was third, and Vivek Ramaswamy was a distant fourth. After the Iowa caucuses having failed to achieve the surprise he thought he was going to achieve, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, suspended his campaign and uh, wisely decided to endorse Donald Trump. Not exactly unexpected, since he was been marketing himself as sort of a trump light version anyway, uh, trying to drain the swamp and dismantling the administrative state and so on and so forth. Uh, following the Iowa caucuses and looking at the numbers in New Hampshire because he hadn't really made a big campaign presence there, uh, Ron DeSantis decided to suspend his presidential campaign as well and endorsed Donald Trump. So now you have Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis endorsing Trump, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott endorsing Trump, uh, Dakota, North Dakota Governor uh, Bergham endorsing Trump. So Nikki Haley is increasingly isolated, but she's still hawking uh, that she's the one. She's something different. She's the person who can beat Biden. Trump can't beat Biden. You know, this sounds hauntingly familiar, very much like John Kasich, that crybaby from Ohio, who, as he got wiped out in primary after primary, hadn't won one Finally won one when he got to his own state. He managed to eke out a victory in Ohio. But how do you lose every primary and then claim you're the only one who could beat the Democratic opponent? It's laughable. And Nikki Haley is not popular in her own state. That should give you uh, a moment of pause. So what is happening in New Hampshire? Why all the wild speculation? Well, I'll tell you. Because they're hoping to stop Trump, at least temporarily, in New Hampshire, but they want to create the impression that if they stop him in New Hampshire, they've stopped him permanently. See, New Hampshire has very different rules. People de- can declare themselves up to a certain amount of time before an election as a member of one party or another. So, what they're trying to basically do is have Democrats masquerade as independents and flood the rolls and sort of come out in a uh, counter espionage um, um, or counter revolutionary strike and make it appear that Nikki Haley has greater support among the Republican base than she does to try and eke out a victory for her. If they do, the news media will take this and use this opportunity to engage in um, rampant speculation. That's all there's going to be is speculation. Try and create the impression that, it's, uh, that Iowa was a, uh, an outlier. It was all smoke and mirrors. Trump is finished, and so forth and so on. It's not going to happen, but that's what they're praying for, and that's what they're going to do. The next primary after New Hampshire is South Carolina. Donald Trump will wipe up everyone in South Carolina, and that will be the end of this counter-revolution. I don't think it's even going to get past New Hampshire because we have some new poll numbers relative to New Hampshire that I think uh, bears out looking at. According to this article, Trump maintains solid advantage in New Hampshire polls. Even with the support of formerly undeclared granted staters who are Democratic Party voters, Nikki Haley will struggle to beat former President Donald Trump. Here's what it says. On January 22nd, okay, that's today, three new polls were published. All of which show President Trump with a sizable lead over his last challenger. Nikki Haley, according to the polls which came out today, he leads by a margin, depending on which poll you look at, of between 19% to 27%. That's a lot in a two-person race. That's a crushing defeat. In no general election have you ever seen numbers like that. Uh, in fact, in a general election, when you get somebody like Reagan winning 59% of the vote or 60% of the vote, that's, that's a crushing defeat. But to lose by 19 to 27%, that's a rout. The fact that Trump was able to get 52% in a field of four is unbelievable. He got more votes than his combined three challengers. That's putting it in perspective for you. Now, Suffolk University's latest poll, uh, which was published in the Boston Globe, shows Trump with support of 57.4% of likely Republican voters, while Nikki Haley has 38.2% of those voters. Only 2.2% remain undecided at this point. Uh, Now, the poll surveyed 500 voters from New Hampshire. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but believe me, I have some uh, knowledge about polling and sampling. Uh, It's virtually impossible to sample uh, an entire country or an entire state. Let's just speak to every single person. It's just not practical. That's why the ultimate poll is usually an election. That's when you get the most people weighing in. But if we had to do that, it just wouldn't be practical if we want to get data from marketing and other things. So marketing companies have developed these stratified samples that they use that, based on very, very modest-sized samples, they can extrapolate out with a standard of deviation. That's what I tell you. It has a margin of error of plus or minus. percent. These are mathematical things, standard deviation from the bell-shaped curve or the norm, the center. Uh, And they're very, very accurate. So this particular poll has a standard deviation margin of error of 4.4 percent. So we can go either way. So Trump could theoretically have 4.4 percent less than 57, in which case he would have 53 percent support among Republicans, and Nikki Haley could have 4% more, so she could have 42%, in which case, even if the standard of deviation worked against Trump and to Miss Haley's benefit, she'd still get routed by a full 10 percentage points. If it goes the other way, and Trump gets 4.4% uh, more, his support goes over 60%, and her support goes down to around 34%, uh, 33%. So... Doesn't look like it's very, very good for Nikki Haley. Uh, The Boston University published a number of these polls. Uh, Let's see what else we have here. In the first edition of its New Hampshire primary poll, published back in October, Trump was the top choice with 49% of likely voters, while 19% would choose Ms. Haley. At the time, there were 20% of the voters preferring Florida Governor Ron DeSantis or former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, or Vivek Ramaswamy. So that was split. So she's picked up some of that. I would say Trump has picked up some of that. It's going to happen as the field narrows. You're going to get people going one way or the other. By the beginning of January, though, Trump's support had dipped to 46, while Haley's rose to 26. And that's what started, everyone started wildly speculating that Haley was the real number two and that DeSantis was out. Now, those of you who follow this podcast and have listened to me know that I predicted almost six or eight months ago that there was no way that Ron DeSantis was going to be able to hold up to the barrage that would be visited upon him by the swamp if he were to somehow get in. That only Donald Trump was equipped to do this. I also said that Ron DeSantis, having been a very successful governor in Florida and very, very young, popular in a state, unlike Nikki Haley, who was unpopular in South Carolina, should have had nothing to do with the presidential run this time around. He was young enough to wait it out. He should have waited to see if Trump won. And if Trump won and the country did well, he could look to take the mantle from him in 2028. If Trump didn't win and the country plunged deeper into darkness, The country would be clamoring for Republican leadership. He would have been ideally positioned. I said from the get-go, anyone who's got real presidential aspirations that has a, a viable chance now without association with Trump, someone who's got nothing to lose can do well by working with Trump. But if you've already got your own independent chance, so to speak, you'd be better off not getting on board the Trump train because Trump, whom I love dearly, is going to have to lop off heads when he gets back in because there's so much corruption. There's going to have to be a lot of bloodletting. And even though it's necessary, it may alienate certain people. So anybody that wants to have a chance of winning the presidency should not in any way associate themselves with that bloodletting, however necessary it's going to be, They shouldn't be a part of it. And so Ron DeSantis never should have uh, entered this race to begin with. I'm glad he made the smart move by dropping out as early as he did. Maybe he can salvage himself for 2028 or some other run down the road. uh, Or hopefully he didn't stay in too long to damage himself. Now, Nikki Haley, she's got no real chance. This is a Hail Mary. Everything for her, in my opinion, is riding on New Hampshire because the field only looks worse for her with the upcoming primaries that follow New Hampshire. This is her best, last hope to make a real stand where she can convince people it's not going to happen, but this is where it's going to take place. After tomorrow, you're going to see a very, very different presidential race, and you're going to see a very, very different Democratic strategy, response, and tone, and the media is going to crank up their rhetoric, rhetoric against Trump as well. That's what you're going to see. Let's read a little more here on these polls. Now, as I said, she started to build up ahead of steam uh, beginning of January. Her numbers started to go up. Trump's support had dipped to 46%. Haley's rose to 26. That's still 20 percentage points. It's a yawning chasm. And the remaining 22% supported either DeSantis, Christie, or Ramaswamy. So, this is where the Haley story began to take note, where the mainstream media was looking to cast Haley as the presidential candidate, with perhaps DeSantis being tapped as the number two man, vice president. That turned out to be short lived once Trump waylaid everyone in Iowa. Now, Christie dropped out of the race ahead of the caucus because he knew he couldn't do anything there. So, he saved himself the embarrassment, the whale. He's a big enough target, so why make yourself even more visible? So he dropped out. Ramaswamy, as I said earlier, suspended his campaign that night after he finished fourth and saw that his chance of surprising anyone was over. He only had 7.7% of the vote. And Mr. DeSantis has withdrawn, uh, and they both have since endorsed Mr. Trump. Now, another poll conducted by Mammoth University and published by the Post, in Washington Post uh, showed a slightly, but still a slighter, and I'm sorry, a slighter, but still significant lead for President Trump. The poll was conducted over the course of January 16th to the 20th, and this one surveyed a stratified sample of 712 New Hampshire residents, people who identified themselves as potentially wanting to vote in the Republican primary. And this poll uh, gleaned that 52% would vote for President Trump and 18% would vote for Nikki Haley. That's an 18% margin of victory. Um, only 2%, just as in the earlier poll, remained undecided. This poll had a very similar margin of error, 4.2%. So, worst case scenario, Trump really only has 47.8% uh, support and Nikki Haley would have. 40 percent support if she had four points if he went four points down she went four points up he'd still beat her by eight percent that's still a very large margin uh and if it goes the other way trump's support could be as high as 56 percent and nikki haley's could be as low as 30 percent either way i just don't think um that's going to bode well for her also this poll Included Ron DeSantis because he hadn't dropped out yet. And 8% of the respondents chose him. Now, even if you want to grant that all 8% go from Ms. Haley, which I don't think is going to be the case, um, it's still not enough. So, and you have to believe that not all 8% would go to one candidate. You could say the majority might or a significant percentage might, but Trump would catch some of those. So, um, the man that ran the polls, fellow by the name of Patrick Murray, he's the director of the uh, Mammoth University Polling Institute, and he said he doesn't think Mrs. Haley can, quote, catch the front runner, even if officially so-called undeclared voters who are actually Democratic Party voters show up to support her. And that's what they're really trying to do. This is a counter-espionage campaign of Democrats in Republican or independent clothing trying to come in there and saying they're voting for Nikki Haley, people who would never vote for Nikki Haley in the general election because they would vote for the Democrat, because they are Democrats. The last poll was a poll conducted by Insider Advantage, and this poll was conducted after Ron DeSantis dropped out, and, uh, and his endorsement would likely send his voters to the Trump camp. The poll conducted on the 21st, which was yesterday, was done with 850 likely voters in the GOP primary. 62% of those respondents said they will vote for President Trump, and 35 will choose Nikki Haley. 3% in this poll said they are still undecided, and this poll also has a similar margin of error 4.32%. I'm not going to go over the math again. I've done it twice few with the other polls. You can see now this is even a wider margin. So, everything I said with respect to margin of error and standard of deviation with the other numbers is even uh, more exaggerated here uh, in terms of a, mar- a larger margin, potential margin for uh, victory for President Trump than either of the other two polls uh, indicate. So, I don't know how you can say things are looking good for Nikki Haley. And she's got. The governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, who's John Sununu, who was in with the Bushes. His father was in with the Bushes. Uh, so you got Chris Sununu. That's the establishment Republicans. They're dragging Nikki Haley all over the state because apparently Chris Sununu is a popular governor in New Hampshire. And he's hoping to transfer that popularity from himself to Nikki Haley. I don't think it's going to work. I'd like to see this thing play out the way I've just predicted that Trump makes a substantial and convincing victory tomorrow in New Hampshire. I think it's better for everyone because just prolonging this is not going to do anyone any good. Nikki Haley has two chances of winning the nomination. Extremely slim and none. Uh, And really more, it's like one chance, none. So the sooner we get this charade over with and get everyone marshaled behind Trump, which is what uh, Laura Ingraham has said, which is what Kellyanne Conway has said, which is what um, Megyn Kelly has said and a lot of others, what Newt Gingrich has said, it's over. Trump's going to be the nominee. No one's going to stop him. The sooner we get it done, the better off we'll all be. And now you see all these prosecutions are beginning to tumble like a house of cards. This thing in Georgia, which everyone said he's going to be convicted on. Well, you can have... um, Fannie Willis running around in black churches trying to say that this is being racism, that he only picked one brother, that he's equally qualified, he's a star. Well, that's a lie. He's not equally qualified, and he's not a star, and she didn't pay them all the same. His hourly rate of compensation is $100 an hour more. That's number one. And number two, there's no indication he's prosecuted in any case of any import, and he spent most of his life as a traffic court judge. I hardly think that qualifies him to head the prosecution of the former president of the United States in a high-stakes game of of, uh, election interference through the weaponization of the criminal justice system. Do you? I don't. And to pay him $654,000 and then to go on lavish vacations with him, using that money uh, while he's in the midst of a divorce, uh, this stinks to high heaven. And now the Uh, spouse who's seeking a divorce is showing up with receipts in court she's going to have to recuse herself this whole thing may just blow up as far as the uh, prosecutions that are taking place in D.C. (coughs) excuse me no one can predict what will happen there (coughs) other than to say we all know that D.C. is a swamp the Democrats control D.C. the jury pool is tainted so if there's a jury trial there it's very possible that President Trump gets convicted on something. Does it hold up on the appeal? I don't think so. But I'm not too concerned about that because they still can't stop him from running. Those are federal cases. And if he wins, <coughs> he can pardon himself. If you want to say you can't pardon yourself, he's got another alternative. He can... Res- he can um, saying he's resigning two days before the 20th of January and the last year of his term. The vice president will then take over and will pardon President Trump with two days left if there are any of these convictions. Look, there's several ways around this. I don't think it's going to come to that, uh, but I don't think these these, ca- these prosecutions are all falling apart. And uh, this other, these other prosecutions in New York, we're going to cover those in an, another broadcast, but they're all starting to break apart. Uh, the, the House of Cards has come begun to come tumbling down. Uh, the first avalanche began after that obliteration in the Iowa caucuses last week and I think the next substantial chunk that's going to be knocked out of the armor uh, that the Democrats have been trying to surround themselves with is going to be a resounding victory by Trump in the New Hampshire primary and then South Carolina is going to be the icing on the cake and the nomination will be sewn up. There's no question of who the Republican nominee is going to be. And the people want him. They just want him. They don't want what we see here. We, we don't want anarchy. We don't want to see homeless people sleeping all over the sidewalks of our most populated, important cities like Manhattan. I shouldn't have to walk my dog at night in Midtown Manhattan where I, I pay a substantial amount of money to live, to trip over uh, homeless people, disease-ridden immigrants, thugs, mental patients who should be in uh, psychiatric hospitals, uh, sleeping on the street. Anyone who's sleeping on the street in 19-degree weather is obviously not all there. Uh, You'd go to a shelter before you'd sleep out in cold like that. So uh, the public wants this man and all attempts to try and stop him are only emboldening him and are only emboldening his supporters. And we're setting the stage for a basically a uh, repudiation of everything we've been told by the mainstream media and the Biden White House these past uh, three years. That's all for today. Join me uh, for coverage of the New Hampshire primary. I would like to weigh in after the primary uh, uh, tomorrow night if it's not too late I will do one if not we will have a podcast for you on Wednesday morning right after the primary where we'll give our opinion our analysis and what we think the the next move forward is in the 2024 presidential election campaign and the continued saga which I refer to as the return of Donald J. Trump for the Jamie Dury Show I'm Jamie Dury.